Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm here in Cape Town, South Africa, and I have connected via modern technology to our special studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, where we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University and Colin Call, also of Georgetown University, and off to the hot tub in Palo Alto, where we have Corey Shockey of Stanford (laughs) University, um, to discuss the world as it is today. In the last episode, we talked about North Korea, there was a little bit of a mention of Hurricane Irma, which, as we speak, seems to be heading directly at Mar-a-Lago. One can only hope. Uh, uh, hopefully it will get very small and very intense, very localized, not affect anybody else. Um, but, you know, there are other things going on, and I'd like to talk about a couple of those and then sort of expand this out uh, to sort of broader geopolitical meeting. And I want to start with something that seems like a domestic issue, but I don't really think is a domestic issue. And that is the decision by Donald Trump and his administration as expressed by um, a diminutive um, racist attorney general, Jeff Sessions, um, uh, to uh, uh, end the DACA program, uh, which provided certain protections for kids who were brought to this country illegally and had grown up here as Americans, uh, an Obama-era executive order um, that has now been uh, pulled, uh, and the president said, let the Congress solve this problem. Um, And I just want to talk to the panel and say, uh, what do you think? And I'd like to start with Colin, because there you were in the Obama administration as this kind of decision was being made. And um, what do you think? What do you... how? In, in, of all the horrors of the Trump administration, where do you rank this one? It's pretty high. It's despicable. It's immoral. It, it uh, Like a lot of what Trump has been doing in the last couple of months, it essentially plays to his base by picking on the, the least powerful, the least empowered segments of our society, whether it's going after, you know, transgendered patriots who want to serve in our military, whether it's the awful moral relativism he demonstrated in the context of the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville and now, uh, you know, going after the dreamers uh, uh, by, uh, you know, getting rid of DACA and kicking the can to uh, or passing the buck to Congress to try to deal with it, which is essentially, uh, you know, is going to end up potentially deporting, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids uh, who were, you know, brought here not because they chose to, but because their parents came here 
and have done nothing wrong uh, and are and have so much potential to contribute to our society as past waves of immigrants have. Uh, there's no rationale, economic, security, or any reason uh, to, uh, to really be punitive and mean-spirited uh, towards these kids. And yet, uh, we, that's what Donald Trump does. So there, it's just fundamentally immoral. Uh, but more than that, I, I think on the world stage, it's part and parcel of, you know, a tarnishing of that shining city on the hill that at least, you know, a lot of United States presidents have aspired uh, to make uh, uh, make America be. Um, you know, my my old boss, uh, Joe Biden, uh, used to say frequently that the United States not only leads through the example of our power, but the power of our example. Uh, that is that we, you know, we're not a perfect place, as, as Barack Obama used to say, we're not perfect, but that over time we seek uh, to perfect our union, uh, to be better and better, to show the best sides of us, uh, to be more tolerant, uh, more inclusive, treat everybody uh, in the United States with dignity, no matter where they come from, where they were born, what they look like, what religion they practice, who they love, and that it's not just about doing the right thing by our people, uh, but it's by showing, it's, it's showing the best of who we are to the world. And these values not only help in so-called soft power, but frankly, they're what bind us to our democratic allies in Europe and Asia and elsewhere, this common sense of decency and tolerance and inclusion uh, that make up uh, not only democracies, but in our case, you know, one that was founded by immigrants and continues to be uh, uh, made stronger by them. It just makes us weaker. And and it makes us the outsider. It makes us look like a pariah. It, 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 it impoverishes us. So it's not not only immoral and terrible and shows that that Donald Trump is just not a decent person, uh, but it also does damage to us on the world stage. Uh, Corey? I agree that the administration's decision is quite damaging uh, to America and the world and also corrosive to our what I view as our best sense of ourself. Uh, so so I, share, I share that perspective with Colin. It seems to me that, a, that one of the biggest mistakes the Trump administration is making is dramatically undervaluing how important America's reputation for decency is in the world, how much that buys us the benefit of the doubt when we are bungling clumsily around in our foreign policy, that people give us credit for being different and better than other strong states in the international order, and that the Trump administration is burning very rapidly through that currency in a way that will take us a generation to rebuild. The second point I would make is that this is that the president potentially repealing this illustrates the disadvantage of legislating by executive order and that this would have been these 800,000 people living and working in the United States and contributing to our society would not be at risk this way if the Congress had at any time before or after President Obama's executive order had legislated this. Um, I, Colin, please correct me, or Rosa or David, if I'm mistaken on this, but I, I think that the president did it by executive order because the democratically controlled Congress couldn't get it passed, which makes me skeptical that a Republican Congress will come anywhere close to passing it as legislation. 
Which takes me to my third point, which is that this is one more demonstration of the president refusing to take responsibility for outcomes that he wants. I'm actually about two-thirds of the way persuaded that President Trump's governing strategy is actually to make you know, wild declarations that low-information voters will take to be action and then nothing ever resulting from it. I feel like that's what he did on the transgender uh, ban from military service. It looks to me like that's what he's doing with this, right? Because already, already on Tuesday, he was walking back the, I'm going to do this by executive order and saying, I'm just putting this in Congress's court where it belongs. I agree it belongs in Congress's court, but I doubt that's what the president was aiming for. It looks to me like he doesn't have the first idea how to get policy enacted in the United States government. And so he's making declarations that low, low information voters will take as action and which will, to parallel Colin's very good point from our earlier podcast about foreign policy, about reassuring enemies and alarming friends, that this is going to reassure low information voters and it's going to alarm these 800,000 people and their families and all sorts of Americans like me who think this is outrageous, an outrageous thing to do. Well, let me, let me first of all say one thing. You referred to the Democratic-controlled Congress. Correct me if I'm wrong, Colin, since you lived through this, but I believe when the Obama administration tried to get this passed, they got 55 votes. They needed 60. And so it was actually the fact that a couple of Republicans voted, would, didn't cross the party line, that kept them from getting there uh, because it was a 60-vote Margin. Uh, thank Why? you. I didn't realize. Yeah, that. I, I mean, I just think more broadly, I think there was hope during the Obama administration, both while the Democrats were in control and uh, even after the House and the Senate flipped, was that Im comprehensive immigration reform might be something we could get bipartisan agreement on because the GOP was hemorrhaging uh, uh, Hispanic voters and, and other things. And so there, I, ideally, there should be some uh, logic uh, to doing a, a tough but humane uh, set of immigration policies. But when that became unavailable uh, because the votes simply weren't there, then the president maximized what he could do through executive action. And I agree with Corey that, you know, the, the problem is you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And in this case, whatever you, you know, push through by skating at the edge of executive authority, you can unwind uh, with a stroke of a pen. And if the next president uh, thinks differently. Well, Rosa, let me turn to you to get your take on this thing, but let me throw one other thing into it. Uh, the president has done this, not only in the midst of this North Korea crisis, um, but but he's done it in the midst of the crisis around Hurricane Harvey. Uh, I believe that of all the states in the United States, uh, Texas is home to the second largest number of dreamers. I think it's 110,000 dreamers. Um, I, 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 there is a very large population in and around the area affected by this hurricane. And so in the midst of this thing, and there were some inspiring stories of dreamers who were heroic in this, including one who lost his life, um, in the midst of this whole thing, the timing sends just a horrible message um, to, um, you know, the, the, a devastated part of the United States. And, and it's sort of doubly inhumane. 
Um, I mean, you know, I think Colin gets it right. This is despicable. But 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 what's 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 your take on this in terms of its sort of timing and secondary impacts? Oh, I mean, yeah, it's a kind of kick them while they're down uh, timing. It, it is it is awful. It is depressing. Uh, it's sort of it's unconscionable. Um, um, again, the only surprise. You know, interestingly, I, I think that the Trump administration, in a sense, did learn something from the fiasco, uh, the travel ban fiasco, in the following sense: in that it, they did roll this out with a "this doesn't start tomorrow." You know, that this starts in six months, and there's this process for sort of grandfathering certain people in and for exemptions and so on. Um, and that I think was a, a learning experience. Um, uh, you know that they did take some lessons from from the travel ban stuff. The the lesson that they seem to have failed to, to take, um, in addition to the lessons of morality, humanity, humanity, etc. Leaving those aside for a moment, just focusing on political tactics, uh, is is one of timing, um, which it, it, it absolutely. I mean, I, I think that from even just a sort of self protective perspective for Trump. You know why on earth would you announce this right now? You know, it. it I think it comes across as kicking him while they're down. The 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 only um you know in the last episode I I seized hold temporarily of the the tr of optimism and to to try to retain it. Um, it, ironically, it strikes me as not impossible that we are now closer to getting Congress to act to extend the DACA protections than we have been at any point for the simple reason that the Trump administration has handled this so appallingly badly uh, and in such an unconscionable way that we have Republican leaders who were previously opposed to DACA now coming out and saying that they support it. Um, does that guarantee anything whatsoever? You know, is is this all, you know, Trump really is a humanitarian. He really does love the dreamer, then he knew this was the only way to get Congress to pass legislation. I don't think so. I mean, he's playing if, – if, if that's what he's doing, he's playing chicken with people's lives. And frankly, I, I don't I don't think there's any reason to give him that much credit. Um, but it is, it is possible that this particularly appalling display uh, of callousness <laughs> towards the lives of people who are here in the U.S. through no fault of their own – who sometimes do not even speak the language of the country of their birth, have no ties there, et cetera. And the suggestion that we're going to send them off, uh, you know, it's just – it's heartbreaking. It's unconscionable. Um, but perhaps it will, in fact, motivate Congress to to do something. I, and I do want to say just a, a, a sort of a, a footnote to that though. The, the claim being made by the Trump administration um, – that they have to do this because they consider DACA to be unconstitutional executive action is just garbage. Um, you know, Corey is right. Would it be better for Congress to act? Of course it would be better for Congress to act. This is a democracy. It would be better for the elected representatives of the people of the United States to actively participate in governing the country instead of being essentially right. AWOL. Um, that would be better. But there's there's not the slightest reason to think any of this is unconstitutional. On the contrary, the Supreme Court has been absolutely crystal clear uh, that the executive branch has the discretion to decide in the, the, the large population of, of immigrants who are here, who are undocumented, who are not here lawfully, uh, that the executive branch has the absolute discretion to decide, given limited resources, et cetera, 
whether they're going to try to deport some of them, all of them, none of them, when, how, et cetera, whether they can live here and work here in the meantime. You know, the, I mean, crystal clear, the Supreme Court could not be more explicit about that. So there, there's just – there's no there there to the argument that it's unconstitutional as opposed to saying for democratic legitimacy, of course, we'd rather have all branches of government be on the same page. Well, you know, by the way, folks, as you listen to this at home, um, you know, you might think, well, that's Rosa talking, you know, who, you know, her main distinction is that she's got a very, very, very dark worldview. But every now and then, but every now and then when I'm not stocking up my, my bunker, I do teach constitutional law. Right. And that was the point that she is the associate <laughs> dean of the Georgetown School of Law. So this opinion carries a considerable amount of weight. Now, having said that, Colin, you know, decisions like this seem very domestic. Uh, and maybe they seem kind of narrow, but it seems to me that there's a ripple effect. You know, one ripple effect takes you out from the 800,000 DACA um, uh, uh, beneficiaries to, you know, the millions of people who are in their families, uh, both in terms of their concerns about the DACA beneficiaries, but also the fact that this added to other administration policies creates deeper and deeper anxiety among the 11 million or so people who are in this country without papers and among people who might want to come to this country from outside the U.S. And on top of it, it compounds a series of actions by the Trump administration um, targeting Muslims, targeting Latinos, um, uh, supporting uh, essentially voter suppression techniques that target blacks, um, uh, uh, planning to do things that, you know, target uh, women and other groups that sort of send out a message that this is not the United States you remember. It's not welcoming. It's not tolerant. Uh, it's not uh, 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 open-minded when it comes to opportunity uh, for all that something fundamentally has changed the United States. And it seems to me that that's got repercussions for our international standing, for um, uh, uh, tourism, for people coming to study here, for people th thinking to bring their brains and their energies to work here, and so forth. And I'm just wondering, do you think that there are real global consequences to actions like DACA? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I think you encapsulate a lot of the risks, right? And I, I think I think Trump's broader agenda um, uh, it kind of commingles the domestic and international sphere to a degree that at least hasn't been the case with presidents in my lifetime. That is, if you if you talk to you know if when when Trump talks about the biggest challenges the United States faces, there are all these things which I would call intermestic challenges. These things that cross over the domestic and international domain. There's immigration. Uh, you know, supposed floods of refugees, unfair trade practices, the threat of of radical Islam. These are all things that are threats inside our country that emanate from abroad that require us to build walls and hunker down and be more protectionist and be more nativist and all of these things. And his actions in each of these areas to live up to his campaign promises and play to his base also signal that the United States has lost its moral 
uh, foundations, uh, you know, the who we are. I mean, you saw this a couple of weeks ago when Stephen Miller got into arguments uh, with reporters during, uh, you know, the, during uh, White House press time about what the Statue of Liberty meant and whether it actually was was intended to be as welcoming to the huddled masses as the inscription reads. I mean, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I thought it was intended to be if you pass this point, I will club you to death with my torch. Yes, yes. Right. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, my tiki torch. Uh, so, look, I, I think that this this president has systematically gone after what makes the United States exceptional, uh, uh, different, uh, but also exceptionally powerful in excess of whatever our material capabilities have been. And that's what we've stood for and what we've aspired to. And we're not perfect. We're extraordinarily imperfect. But we've always had a system that appeared to be over time somewhat self-correcting and also improving over time. And I think he cast doubt on uh, on a lot of that. And just to pick up on one thing that Rosa said, it is ironic that the Trump administration basically says that we have to get rid of this because it's an excess of executive power <laughs> right. when the very it's travel so, ban— It's so sweet right, that he cares. Yeah, so, right. This is obviously <laughs> the only time he's ever cared about excessive executive power in the face of constitutional restraints, whether it be free speech, free association, or you know separation of powers or anything else. But of course, they also asserted, and Rosa, you would know more about this than me, but in the context of the travel ban, they've exerted, they've asserted in court extraordinary powers of the executive to basically establish who comes and goes based on what right. uh, uh, principles, guidelines, in, in regulations. In direct contravention to Correct. statutory restrictions on the power to uh, discriminate on the basis of national origin. Right. Correct. So this is uh, – there's nothing consistent uh, morally or uh, legally about any of this. It's definitely just a cop-out. It's kicking it to the Congress so that if Congress remains paralyzed as they have on everything else, uh, that he can share the blame for this while feeding uh, his base. But in the meantime, uh, he will have compromised our image in the world. And, and if you think about these issues – Immigration, refugees, trade, radical Islam, these are all things that the way he talks about it with his base alienate us with the rest of the world. But also the actions that he's taken are arguably complicating our relationships with the most dynamic parts of the world that are most important to U.S. security going forward. And and, and sorry to go on for so long, but let me put one point on this. You know, I think one thing that uh, one of the things that Barack Obama got right was to identify the Asia Pacific region, both sides of the Asia Pacific equation, Asia and the Western Hemisphere, as essential to the the economy, security, and prosperity of the United States for the rest of the 21st century. That no regions of the world mattered more than both sides of the Asia Pacific equation. What has Donald Trump done? He's come in. He threw out the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He's now doing things that seems tailor-made to alienate us from the rest of 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 uh, the Western Hemisphere. This is on top of the wall and all the crazy stuff that he says to Peña Nieto about uh, NAFTA and paying for the wall and everything else. And so he, it's not only that he's hunkering down, but he, that he's making it more difficult for us to have the re- relations with precisely the countries that we will need to keep the United States safe and prosperous in the coming decades. Right. To say nothing of the message that he's sending to other countries that are involved in, in racist or worse pursuits. Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, look to the United States uh, and once might have gotten pressure from the U.S. and are not going to get it anymore. Um, uh, Corey, before we get into something of substance, I do want to note that moments ago, Colin used the term intermestic, and I wanted <laughs> to give you an opportunity to beat him up a little bit. <laughs> 
I can we have a mug that says intermittent? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I think we should have a deep state radio nerds contest for what the best possible uh, definition of intermestic would be. Um, it doesn't have to be real. It, it just sounds has a to little be bit appropriate. Icky. Yeah. <laughs> no intermestics can serve in the military. That's all I know. <laughs> right. Hi. <laughs> Medical costs yeah. are too high. I am. Um, oh, okay, David. So I'm hanging my mission accomplished banner on ridiculing intermestic. What was the question? Well, there wasn't a question yet. I really just wanted to focus on kicking Colin for using the term intermestic, but, um, <laughs> but, and, but it could have been worse, right? Because he could have gone, uh, doma national or <laughs> intermestics oh, yeah. who are into doma national right. stuff D- are D- doma doubly national prohibited. Stuff is way to S and M for this crowd. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Again, I did not need the visual. <laughs> it's all, it's all makes me a little uncomfortable, but having said that, um, you know, we are at um, a place now where the you know the president goes and he takes these kind of actions and then punts it over to the Congress. And you mentioned that you don't think he knows how to get anything done. Do you think what I mean with this DACA thing? I mean, will the Congress pick this up? Are the members of your party actually savvy to the fact that in the 2020 uh, election cycle, by 2020? Um, uh, the majority of people under the age of 18 will be Latino, African-American, or Not Asian. if we can deport by, them first. Yeah. And by 2044, uh, the majority of people in the United States will actually be what once were considered minorities. So, I mean, it, it's, is there a possibility that a light bulb is going to go off and Congress is going to do the right thing? Or is this thing going to actually expire in six months and we're going to start essentially kicking out people who have been here their whole lives, essentially, and making America a better place. I do not believe that that we will actually deport even a substantial number of the 800,000 uh, people affected by this executive order, um, but not because of... of sensible arithmetic, voter arithmetic on the part of congressional Republicans, nor do I believe uh, it will be the result of of effective policymaking by the administration, i.e. the president coming to his senses and and realizing what a terrible policy this would be. Uh, I actually think that there will be uh, activism by civil society and activism in the courts, and there ways will be found to prevent this that have to do with humanitarian concerns, that have to do with legal standing. I think so. The White House is claiming that the president had to take action on this because several governors were about to challenge the the executive order. Um, I think governors on the other side of the line are going to challenge the pre- President Trump's executive order, and I think the courts will be once again thrust in the position of making a policy decision because the the two branches of the federal government that are supposed to 
uh, make and execute laws are going to, for the fifth or sixth time in the last 15 years, prove themselves incapable of doing so? Um, well, let me ask you a, a, a question, Colin. As I sort of hear all of this, what I hear is a president of the United States who's lost his moral standing, and I hear a president is not actually able to get a lot of stuff done, um, and uh, I see America's standing in the world declining. And simultaneously, in Xiamen, China, um, the uh, president of China, Xi Jinping, is hosting the other members of the BRICS um, uh, grouping, Brazil and Russia and India and uh, South Africa. Uh, and he's talking like, well, if there's a void, I mean, he said something to this effect, out in the world, then we're going to have to step up. And world leadership is changing, and we have to play a different role. And I'm just wondering, to what extent is this opportunism? To what extent is this realism? To what extent is this blamed on Trump? And to what extent is this just rhetoric? I think it's all of the above. I mean, I think some of it, frankly, represents structural changes that have nothing to do with uh, Donald Trump, but that Donald Trump's election have accelerated. Um, and it was long, be you know, it was long before DACA or Charlottesville or other things that that come to mind in recent uh, weeks uh, that have so compromised our our sense of who we are uh, that the president is res responsible for. It was long before that that you saw the Xi Jinping's of the world, for example, talking about filling the vacuum. I remember my last trip uh, as uh, Joe Biden's national security advisor was accompanying the vice president to uh, this year's um, uh, World Economic Forum in Davos just a few years before, I'm sorry, just a few days before uh, Trump's inauguration. And of course, Xi Jinping gave a big speech at Davos, essentially talking about how China was, was ready to take over the mantle of global leadership. And the rhetoric in the speech uh, while I think largely aspirational, uh, nevertheless, was you know kind of cookie cutter out of what you could have expected an American or Western leader uh, to uh, to talk about. Um, I do think that that the collapse of our uh, values or, or the 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 collapse of the power of our inspiration provides opportunities for others. Although it's not like you know China or other uh, autocratic and illiberal states are going to fill the values void. It's just that in general, the United States is getting weaker uh, from both a, a material and an inspirational uh, standpoint. And the question is, um, can we survive the next three and a half years, essentially? And what's so interesting is that it appears that Trump's cabinet they're asking themselves the same question. There was that leaked video of Jim Mattis talking to troops in Jordan who basically said their job was to was to hold the line until the United States recovered from this aberrational moment and recovered our ability to inspire the world. And he was clearly talking about, uh, uh, you know, the lack of moral character that Trump showed in the context of Charlottesville. You then had Tillerson go uh, on TV and essentially say, look, the U.S. government and the individuals in the government continue to stand up for American values and then asked if that applied to the president. He, he, he basically said, no, the president speaks for himself. Uh, and so you have a set of folks in the cabinet who essentially understand that Trump as president has abrogated his responsibility to lead the free world and that they are going to do as much as possible to hold the line. Apparently, that's the reason why people like Gary Cohn aren't leaving the White House, too, although it sounds like he wants to be Fed chairman, too. So that's probably also uh, part of it. But the, I think the broader point is, and this speaks to something that uh, that 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 Rosa and, 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 and Corey and you, David, have talked about, is we all need to hold the line. 
We all need to hold the line. Civil society, the courts, the Congress, uh, a free and independent media, we all have to hold the line and hope that there's not such irreparable damage to America's image in the world and to our norms of civil discourse and democracy that we can rebuild and recover, uh, uh, you know, hopefully after Trump is only a one-term president or even less, perhaps. You know, Rosa, I've been in the past four weeks in Latin America in the Middle East and in Africa, where I am now. And every time I talk to anybody, they go, what's going on with Trump? How did this happen? And when is he leaving? There is no, seriously, that's just the question that comes up over and over again. There is no, literally almost nobody that I've spoken to with the exception of a couple of people in the Middle East have had anything positive to say about him. And, and, And almost all of them have sort of treated me pityingly, you know, like, like, oh, we feel Could bad just be that you. you guys have to. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, it is, it is, it is the kind of treatment I get on a fairly regular basis. Um, um, and, and they did sort of rock me gently back and forth in their arms. So, you know, maybe it was, you know, kind of a... Again, I could have done without the visual. <laughs> in a very, in a very, again, very sort of intermestic kind of way. But... Um, <laughs> Do you think they were exercising dominationalism over you? There's the possibly, there was a little of that. But, you know, I mean, even in the middle of the Serengeti plains where I was surrounded exclusively by animals, they seemed to be looking pityingly at me. The wildebeest. Um, the wildebeest <laughs> and, and the Cape Buffalo. And so the, 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 the question is, in my mind, Rose, is this consistent with your experience? Are we really sort of, have we entered this kind of new period where the world has, it's not like five, six months ago where it was kind of like, is Trump going to weaken the presidency? I feel kind of like we've entered a period where it's just like, forget about it. Nobody takes him seriously. Yeah. He's not seen as a serious global leader. This, the U.S. is not playing the role that it once played, and it will not until Donald Trump is gone. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, uh, I, and I think the sooner the sooner everybody in the world reaches that conclusion, the better off we will all be. Um, I, I don't I, – I think that the – good side of holding the line, um, you know, is this sort of what does not kill us makes us strong. I don't think that this inevitably presages, uh, you know, permanent doom for the United States as a global power uh, or as a, a country that will attract immigrants from all over or that will stand up for values that others admire. Um, I don't think it's inevitable uh, that we we survive this. I think this is very scary and the dangers are, are real, both in terms of uh, the global conflict and in terms of uh, internal conflict within the United States. I think that there are, are serious dangers. Um, but I do think that if we can get through this, there are possible silver linings. And, you know, I've, 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 I've taken this position from the beginning that, wow. you know, gets the nasty. You are, you are I know. So I know. I'm so sorry. I, I, I hate to disappoint you like this. But, but, but no, that, that, that there is something to be said for getting the nastiness out in the open. And I think that it is really interesting to look at the polls, um, 
Uh, Trump dismisses them all as fake polls, but it's been really interesting in the last couple of months uh, to to watch his supporters, many of them peeling away. You know, the bad news is that there seems to be about 10 percent of the American public who think it's just peachy to be a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi and think that that's fine. But the good news is that the large majority, the overwhelming majority of Americans, that this has pushed people, including including people on the far right and Republican congressional leaders, to reaffirm values that in some ways they seem to have drifted away from. You know, and, and, and in that sense, you know, I think that this has the potential to be a good thing. This is the old, remember, poor old George W. Bush would say, um, and unite or not a divider. And there was a sad point where he did indeed seem to be uniting much of the nation in, in unhappiness with his foreign policy in particular. Uh, Trump, in that sense, this may turn out to be even more of a uniter, not a divider, uh, you know, that we are seeing right and left coalescing around some core values. Uh, and, and that could turn out well, you know, in the long run. And, and bad things will happen and people will suffer in the short run and the dangers are real. But, you know, I, I, it's funny. I was, I, my, my children um, emotionally blackmailed me into taking them to see Hamilton. Um, and uh, I was very resistant to this uh, on, you know, principled grounds of A, not particularly liking hip hop and B, uh, thinking that anything so overhyped must be horrible, um, but but you know I well it I liked it I I I admit I liked Hamilton I, I'm not going to sing um, but I liked it and part of what I liked about it you know and I think part of what has struck a chord with with so many Americans in that show is it's got this kind of cheeky, irreverent, but fundamentally generous and warm-hearted approach to our history with all of the warts, you know, that 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 it's it doesn't overlook any of the bad stuff, but at the same time it's it's got this sort of, you know, we are an incredibly diverse nation. We can all of us own our history and play with it and tell a different set of stories and put it to, you know, create a different set of narratives about who we are. Um, and and it was you know really was inspiring and and in, there are ways in which I think that the you know the the bright side of Donald Trump is that he is bringing the majority of the rest of America together in saying whoa if the choices are between a tolerant multi ethnic multi religious diverse United States that is constantly changing and growing and challenging itself or a bunch of people with tiki torches and Ku Klux Klan robes, I know which side I'm on. And that's not a bad thing. Now, Corey, I know, is listening to this. We only have a couple minutes left. And she's listening to this and she's going, I'm glad she liked Hamilton. This has got me giving me my chance to come out with my um, uh, libretto for Miss Nancy, the musical <laughs> Grover study. Cleveland, the, the musical. musical <laughs> no, Miss Miss, I was going Miss Nancy, the, 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 the musical about James Buchanan, likely America's first gay president. Um, uh, and and I think there's some possibility there—a big brag musical set in the middle of the 19th century. Um, and Corey, I encourage you to continue with your work on this. <laughs> so let me say, first of all, I have been 
relishing Rose's soliloquy (laughs) about Hamilton, not only because I share her view on it, but because I and many Deep State Radio nerd listeners will recall David hating Hamilton and being indignant every time a year or two ago I would mention it. Um, So, Are you sorry now, David? (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm so sorry, but good. I, but 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 I ha- I have to say, there were things I liked about Hamilton, but I still think it was kind of a mediocre musical with loud music and a story that was not really tailored to the stage and went on for too long, and it had some oh, good stuff going oh, on. Oh, so picky. You're welcome, David, for me setting that up for you. You're welcome. <laughs> Was there a question you wanted me to answer, though? (laughs) Well, I wanted you to talk about James Buchanan and whether his life was suitable for a musical. Um, Which, by the way, I think it is. Uh, I mean, it ends in the Civil War. You know, you could just see it with Fort Sumter and the... uh, It's fantastic. Anyway, the the, the point I, I guess I'm getting to here is I want to give you the last word. As we look out at Trump's America, we look at the fall and we say, well, gee, it's back to school. We've just had DACA. We've got Harvey. Irma's bearing down. North Korea's going to be on the back burner for a while. We're probably going to have an Iran crisis in the middle of the fall because he looks like he wants to pull the certification. And Mueller and these other guys are closing in. To the extent to which the world wasn't where I said they were, it does look like over the next three or four months, things are actually going to get worse for Trump. As I mean, is in your secret Republican cabals where you you know, have sandwiches with the crust cut off and you play bridge with each other. Do you, is that what the view is? That is that what you guys do? <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to reveal the secret um, inside the circle Republican practices of, of uh, sandwiches with the crust cut off and playing Twister we noticed that part. Come on, you know you want the visual of Mitch McConnell playing Twister. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I agree that we are in for a, a scorching and wildly unpredictable fall, uh, both because I think uh, America's friends are are profoundly anxious about the erratic behavior of the president and the limited uh, ability thus far uh, to understand what his priorities are and what direction he will focus his energies and his seeming incapacity to prioritize and manage problems of such grave international importance as the potential of a default by the United States government on its debt in the next month or so. Um, And I think our enemies are emboldened. It's, you know, people were talking uh, towards the end of the Obama administration about there being a sort of window of vulnerability of adversaries knowing that the president was unwilling to take decisive action. And I... I really resent that the Trump administration is making Obama administration foreign policy look good. <laughs> I I wish we weren't in that place, but I think that 
<laughs> no, no, Colin is shaking his head at in that, a sort of mar- yes, more in sorrow than an anger expression on his face. At that begrudged Gordon. compliment from me, yeah. Put it in the same category as my grudging endorsement of Clinton. <laughs> With a maximum of malice, I admit it. Uh, but I also really do think David's point is a good one, which is that um, as the Mueller investigations wind on, there's going to be so much pressure on the president's inner circle uh, that I think erratic behavior by the president goes up. I think unpredictable uh, trust issues going on within the White House. I think there's just going to be a lot of craziness this fall. I agree with Rosa that that the liberal international order and even American democracy and its beautiful disputatious form um, are strong enough to bear this that we will we may in fact look back on the Trump administration as a as a great blossoming of American democracy because we're all getting an education on civics. We are all being reminded that the government has limited powers and that civic activism and businesses and church groups um, are enormous forces in American uh, life uh, and that the courts and the Congress are co-equal branches of government. But this is going to be a really bruising autumn, and I, I don't think we should sugarcoat that. So much as I hate to more than once as in succession give up the rhinestone tiara of optimism, I must do so. The mug is half empty. Well, I have to say, I have to say your, your, your viewpoint there, which sort of lays out uh, you know, the benefits of all of this, um, does, does entitle you to at least half of that rhinestone tiara of optimism. We will break it into pieces and hand it around here. Uh, because it's just the kind of optimistic view uh, that everybody needs. It worries me a little because it it does sound a little bit like, um, I don't know, a trainer saying, the best thing you could do for your body right now is have a massive heart attack. Because <laughs> uh, uh, that'll really... It feels like a national colonoscopy, actually, but go ahead. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, man. Oh. Um, um, yeah, um, coming from somebody named Colin. Anyway. Oh, uh, David, David, that was low. Okay, we're done here. <laughs> All right, I think this episode is over. It is over, we, but it does give us a sense that we are going to have plenty to discuss here on Deep State Radio over the course of the next few weeks and months and years um, because of all this horrible shit that's going on. And we will have smart, funny, optimistic, and yet somehow pessimistic people. Uh, <laughs> like, I contain regular, multitudes. Yes, exactly. Rosa and Corey and Colin back again every week. We hope you'll come back. We hope you'll bring your friends. Uh, we love all of our deep state radio nerds. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, everybody. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.